0: We've got a couple of miracle stories to start this show. We begin with 16-year-old Isaac Kester. He has cerebral palsy. And thanks to a communication device, he is not only able to communicate everything he's thinking, he can write books. And his first one is entitled, Derek's Super Ultra Action Team. How you doing, Isaac? Great. How long have you been writing?
1: Ever since elementary.
0: Since elementary school? Yes. And you're his mom, Barbara? Yes. Okay.
2: He's read lots of stories yes. and things, but this is the first book.
0: So tell me about this super ultra action team.
3: Derek's super ultra action team is about teenage superheroes in power chairs. They tell why to stop the evil dark dolphin from using their city to finish the underwater super city known as Dolphtopia. Okay,
2: the, the story is there are four young boys in their teens. They all drive power chairs, and they are super superhero team. They're power chairs, and their dog. They have a robot dog, and he like morphs in. They morph into different things, and they. In this story, they're fighting um, the evil dark dolphin who is trying to steal their city.
0: Where does the evil dark dolphin come from?
2: A sixteen-year-old brain. <laughs> <laughs> Just kinda, in the story, it just kind of, you get the feeling they know who he is. But he's actually trying to steal their city to take over their city and to make it part of his underworld city.
0: All right. So, who's on the team with Derek?
2: Kenny, Dustin, and Wills. They're teenagers and they're, they go to school. Then they get word that Dark Dolphin is trying to take over their city. So they go after him to try to save the city.
0: All right. Do they have superpowers?
2: Their chairs do. (laughs) They all drive power chairs and their power chairs morph into like different things. Like they can, they have a robot dog that they can mold together with kind of like Transformers. That's the best I can think of.
0: Okay. Transformers. I know Transformers.
2: Dusty is... um, His turns into a a garage where he can build a weapon to fight Dark dark Dolphin with. And then, like, the robot dog, he actually morphs many times. He morphs into what's called a robot, a Norwal. When he jumps into the sea to fight Dark Dolphin, he becomes a Norwal. And then at one point, all four of the chairs and the dog kind of merge together to create a big fighting robot
0: so they face off against the dolphin
2: yes
0: what's the dolphin want to do to their city take over and do what he
2: he wants to use their city City. to complete his underwater city
0: so he wants the whole world to be underwater
2: yeah he wants the whole world to be part of his underwater city and under his control just wants like complete power over everyone you know, like he rules everyone and everything, and he want basically. If, when you get to the end of the story, the kind of the point is, he doesn't disabled people, any people should just do what he says, when he says, and how he says, and they don't really matter. Nobody really matters but him.
0: Does he target disabled people?
1: Perfect people in a perfect world.
2: Yeah, that's what he's trying to create: a perfect world with perfect people in his eyes.
0: So they start fighting this dolphin. Uh huh. And where do you leave us?
2: They defeat Dark Dolphin and restore their city. But he's typing here. It does,
3: but it doesn't.
2: (laughs) So in the end, they they do defeat the dolphin. But it shows his daughter, the very last page, shows the dolphin's daughter vowing revenge against the team.
0: Okay, so even though they've defeated the dolphin, there's more... To come,
2: yeah, he kind of leaves it open for another, so it, it finalizes the story, but yet it leaves it open for another story.
0: And everything is written on this device.
2: Yes, he. What happens is, it's amazing. His device reads his eyes. It actually has a little infrared bar across the bottom of it that he uses to operate the device with, and then he has a Bluetooth that plugs into his laptop. And that device can then operate his laptop. That's how he typed the story.
0: And he's been writing like this for how long?
2: Oh, he's been writing since he was in grade school. Some of it, they, they did try to work with him being able to actually write, like doing hand over hand. But the skills weren't so good, so he just learned to use this device to write with. And we've been... Speeding it up, um, there's like with the eye gaze, he used to have to wait on it to scan and then he used a clicker thing to click on what letter he wanted.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it was very time consuming. So we had tried eye gaze once it's before.
1: Quick,
2: I think. We tried the eye gaze once before and it didn't seem to work real well. But now the technology has come far enough that it works very well. And he, um, he, didn't, he can go pretty quick with it. He does all his schoolwork, how he does his writing. Like I said, it's just a little Bluetooth thing plugs right into his laptop and he can send the information. Well, actually, he can run the TV too. (laughs) He can run the TV and the remote and um, use an Alexa with it. It's a handy dandy little thing.
0: That's pretty. That is amazing. (laughs) Thank goodness, right?
2: Yes. Mm.
0: (laughs) And I bet nobody encourages him more than you do.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm the one that pushes him to do as much as he can do, and his dad's the one that gives him all the crazy ideas that he uses to write his stories with. <laughs> Does that sound about accurate? Yeah? Okay.
0: So is he working on the follow-up book now?
2: Yeah, I think he's got pretty good... Like, you think he has it all in idea form, I don't think. You have to
3: wait and see. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right, you got to make me wait, Isaac. (laughs) Any idea how you're going to promote this? This is pretty unique.
2: Yeah, we've actually, here at home, we've already sold, well, we ordered 100 books. We only have about 15 left. And I know a lot of our family and friends have already ordered online to try to get it, you know, out there. And we actually bought the the full package, so he's going to have. I think it's called Snowtree Media. They're going to actually do a Zoom interview with him, so which will be great because then people can actually see the device and stuff. Right. And then um, he'll they'll make him his own like. Facebook page and YouTube channel. Great. To help promote. And then Gabby we have a, a
1: great tool for promoting.
2: Gabby's a great tool for promoting. He has an aunt that she, um, she runs an online business. So she's just been right away. Every time anything comes out, she's putting it out there to, you know, to all her friends and everybody she deals with on Facebook too. So she's been really good. Not
3: actually, but,
2: Yeah, not actually aunt, but close enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So she's a friend of the family and you call her an aunt.
2: Well, my husband and her husband are best friends. And they're both only children. So my husband is their grandson's godfather. Okay. So he actually won through Page Publishing. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but they were doing a contest with unboxing videos. He won the uh, contest for that month, and being we had already purchased the promotional package, they are paying to have his book sent to the international book fair in Germany in October.
0: It's a great story. It was just so funny.
2: What you the unboxing video? Videotape or have someone videotape you unboxing your book when they when it first came? We were all really excited. Landslide
3: victory.
2: Even the dog was excited, huh? Landslide victory. It was that great of a victory.
0: <laughs> and, and the dog got in on it, too?
2: Yep, yep. Even the, the whole family is in the video because the dog got in on it because Isaac was so excited.
0: Oh, I really hope this does well for you, Isaac.
3: Well, it was just amazing for all of us, really. When my mom had her emergency C-section, doctors didn't even know if, know if I would see my first birthday. So, seeing my book with me as the author at 16 was just remarkable. For
0: all of us. That's beautiful, Isaac. That's good for you.
2: Dark Dolphin's trying to destroy people and Isaac's trying to say, now there's one part in the book where he literally does say, now disabled people can do whatever they want and they can be part of things and accomplish lots of things. And
3: It's a great feel-good story.
0: That's right. Your book is a great feel-good story and so is your story. I
2: actually... Had an emergency cesarean with him, and they really—they just didn't know. He was in the NICU for three weeks. Um, he had—he was very hypotonic, which is like lack of muscle tone. And he just—they could—they never really. I mean, they said it was cerebral palsy, but they said there's some minor damage to the motor skills in his brain area but they never really gave us other than that. There's no road diagnosis. And I said, the one doctor, his dad and I took it to heart. The doctor said, take him home, treat him like any other child, and deal with things as they arise. So that's what we did. So we push him just like we would any other kid and to do as much as we possibly can do.
3: Greatest doctor quote ever.
2: (laughs) He said that was the greatest doctor quote ever, what the doctor told his dad and I about just taking him home and treat him like any other kid and deal with the problems as they arise.
0: You're good parents, Barb. And Isaac, thank you.
2: Thank you. <laughs>
0: <Bye>. <laughs> Next up, Stephen Rudloff Sr. is lucky to be alive to tell his story entitled The Walking Miracle, written in a most unconventional way. So, Stephen, you were in construction in Pennsylvania before you were inspired to write your story. What happened?
3: first book I ever wrote, I did it with a paralyzed hand. How did you do that? I just took a pen, to put, put some duct tape on my thumb and my one finger, and I printed it.
0: Oh, my gosh. Stephen, what happened?
3: I had a stroke. It's my life history of the book. is my life history of 17 operations. I beat cancer four times, and I survived it. I say I look to a man upstairs every day, thanking him. And the the book proceeds will go to Shriner's Hospital. That's great. I want to give back to people less fortunate than me.
0: All right. So let's tell people
3: what's in the book. I was watching the Memorial Day Parade on TV with Gary Sinise, Joe Montagna, and Sam Elliott. And a lot of my doctors at that time suggested I should write a book. That's how I got the name The Walking Miracle. And... Uh, after I watched that show on Memorial World Day weekend, I decided to uh, call the doctors that following Monday. They sent me out all the medical records, and I started writing off the medical records year by year, and uh, that's how I got started.
0: What was your first sign of trouble?
3: I woke up 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was brushing my teeth. And the toothbrush fell out of my hand. I looked in the miracle, my whole right side of my face was drooped to the right. I had this ungodly pain in my head. And I decided something's wrong. And uh, I crawled down a hallway 200 feet, dialed 911. My buddy was a retired cop. He passed away on me last May. And uh, he had the ambulance right there. And he took me over to uh, Lankan Hospital. How old were you? At that time, I was 68. I, I remember going in and putting in the ambulance. And the guys in the ambulance said, to me, what's your name? I said, Steve. Next thing I heard was the guy in, in there with me in the ambulance he yelled to the driver, hurry up, he's coding. And I know what coding means. And that's all I remember. I don't remember getting to the hospital. I, I would say about two hours later, an hour later. I'm up in intensive care, and the nurses are coming in, put hot compresses on my head. And uh, next thing I know, it's 7.05. Uh, they put me in an induced coma for a month and a half. After I woke up from the coma, my son's were at the bed beside me. And they said, I said, what's going on? Dad, it's a month later. You're in Brimar rehab. And I, I said, what's going on? What, what's the tears for? Dad, you're paralyzed the whole left side. and blind in one eye. Oh. And that's how I started. I was a miserable SOB for the first two weeks. I couldn't believe why me. And then I had a Hispanic nurse come in and dress me every day. And uh, I had to be fed. I was treated like a two-year-old kid. I had to learn how to speak. It's all in the book. I learned how to speak. It took me three weeks to learn how to tie my sneakers. And... Uh, one just one monday the nurse came in she said steve i heard you're giving everybody a hard time over the weekend and i said i don't give a shit and she started this laugh all of a sudden something snapped in my head and i was a different person i said get my get my tuxedo out you'll be going down to miralago We're we'll gonna have steak and champagne and enjoy life all right well she got a hysterical laughing and i did a complete turnaround just
0: in one moment, you decided, I am not going to, to let this...
3: Beat me. Right. So, after that, uh, I spent 45 days of Bryn Rehab, learning how to speak, going through uh, therapy, teaching me how to talk, how to walk. And then after that, they sent me over to Dunwoody for another 45 more days. And during the time, I had to wear a white helmet to cover my brain and I wasn't allowed out of bed unless my male nurse, he uh, said to me, I don't care how many times you press press that button, you can't get out of bed. Of course, at that time I was pissed at the world. I was get, trying to get out of bed, and everybody started running, the arm goes off, everybody starts going into the room. And he told me, you see, that's the second time, the third time we strapped you in. And I changed around, you know what I mean? They gave me a warning. And after that I just turned around and said, I right, I'll follow the rules. And then uh, I had to go to therapy, speech therapy, walking therapy, and all that stuff. And then uh, I had to wear a white helmet to cover the brain. And uh, after that, after done with it, they sent me home for two more months to sit in my apartment until the neurosurgeon said, hey, "Okay, bring him back in. We'll put the top of his head back on." And then. Uh, Six eight months later, I go back over after I had a CAT scan, and uh, the doctor said we got a little problem. I said, What's the problem? So, my son's with me, says we got to take the top of the head back off. It's the piece, the new, the old piece we put on wasn't getting no blood flow, so they had to bring a special machine in for the synthetic piece on. I learned a lot about the brain, and uh, you know. I had the head taken off, the top of the head taken off four times.
0: Are they rewiring you?
3: Yeah, they had the staple all back together again.
0: That's, a, that's incredible.
3: And then on top of that, people don't realize that the, when they put the headpiece back on, they staple it all in and bolt it all in. And then you have to wait six, seven weeks. When you go back in, they got to pull the staples out. It was the most painful thing I've ever had done in my life. Oh. I told the doctor the first time they did it, I said, I wish you would have told me I would have had my bottle of scotch here. He says, we'll give you some scotch after we've done pulling the staples out. (laughs) So uh, the nurse came back and said, Steve, here, doctor says, enjoy your scotch. And scotch and apple juice are the same color. So it was one piece of ice and a little bit of scotch on the rocks. So they put me a glass of apple juice with one uh, ice cube in it, <laughs> one mouthful of it. I said, tell them, thanks for the scotch.
0: Did it taste like scotch?
3: No, <laughs> it, uh, it tastes like apple juice, too. I took the first mouthful. But going through all this, I was uh, at a bit more rehab, and I started making everybody laugh. And he said, you enjoy, we enjoy you coming in because you keep us laughing. My, my neurosurgeon, me and him, are like uh, two brothers now. Saved my life four times. What happened the other times? I had a fall. Can okay, I take the top of the head off again? Recuperate. I was one month away from being released by all the doctors, the seven doctors. And I fell. And I hit my head on the concrete and a piece of pipe. And it jarred my headpiece. So I, I was taken in to get uh, all kinds of CAT scans, MRIs. As of, as of today, I've had, uh, I think the doctor told me, 42 CAT scans and 37 MRIs in the seven-year period. Oh, my God. So he took me in for the third time. And then uh, I get home. My son picked me up, brought me home. I'm home here maybe about four or five days. All of a sudden, I'm eating. And my hand, left hand, whole left side went paralyzed. And I called the doctors right away. They took me back in. In the meantime, the neurosurgeon went away to San Francisco for uh, a conference. And they had to do another operation on me, 4 o'clock in the morning. They had to drill a hole in my head. What they call was it's a brain bleed. So in the meantime, I'm home, relaxing. And uh, I had to go back and get the staple out they only could take the staples out from the first operation the third operation only half of them the other the second time i went back in after five days they had a pinky area green spray green this way i had to come back the final week and uh, get the other half taken out other than that i'm doing fine
0: other than that you're fine now you're good now
3: no i'm still in the doctor's care. i go to therapy two days a week i just came home from therapy and uh I'm learning. I lost thirty uh, percent of my equilibrium. Lost thirty uh, percent of my uh, uh, eyesight, my peripheral. It's never coming back. I'm not allowed to drive. I had going through all this, I had seven, six or seven seizures. Certain foods I cannot eat, like Jello, anything with the dye in it. So anymore, when I go back into the hospital, they all know me. I'm in intensive care, and uh, I'll test them downstairs when I go order my breakfast. Give me some blueberry pancakes. Now that I have blueberries, huh? Because of the diet. I don't eat chocolate. Plus, going through all this, I, have, I got cluster headaches. And I don't know, some people don't know, never heard of them. They're worse than a woman's labor pain. So I know what women go through when they're having labor.
0: But you're still here.
3: And I'm still here. I say hello to the man upstairs every day. Thank you for another day. And every once in a while, I get a noise in my ear. Uh, I left you down here to take care of the kids in Schreiner's Hospital.
0: How are you getting that message out?
3: Uh, I have to, I don't email. I don't text. I got what they call a dumb phone. I don't have no laptop. I'm what they call computer illiterate, and I'm proud of it. I don't do the Bluetooth, green tooth, pink tooth, yellow tooth, whatever you guys got. <laughs> See when I do that, I keep everybody laughing.
0: So you you actually wrote your book by hand then. Yep. Oh, you are crazy.
3: Somebody said it was going to take me two years. I did it in six months, a little bit each day. And I sent it out to the publisher. And it was in two weeks on my birthday. And uh, they called me back up. And the girl said, 11 people read your book. And they're all in awe about it. And uh, we're going to publish the book for you.
0: Wow. Wow. Is there a copy of your book in the offices of all the doctors that helped you?
3: I've been going over to the doctor, uh, Nankinall Hospital and Brimmore Hospital, twice a week. The guy takes me over there, and I autograph the books bought by the doctors and nurse. I autograph them, thanking me I was supposed to have a book signing at Nankinall Hospital, but it's all about money anymore. She says, uh, The big boss is upstairs, the three pink suits, says, if you buy all the doctors and nurses the book, I said, why should I have to, I said, all the money I make here, I don't get a dime out of it. All goes to Shriners Hospital. I said, the publishing company doesn't make a dime until they give me all my money back that I invested in it because I made payments every month for 12 months, came a uh, down payment. Once I get all that back, then they start getting money back.
0: So the doctors and nurses bought copies from you?
3: They bought them on Amazon, YouTube, all those fancy uh, programs.
0: And then you sign them.
3: Yeah. So I'm just waiting for the first royalty check to come in. So I can, uh, I have channel 3, 6, and 10 involved. I'll go down there once I get the check, the first royalty check, and donate the money to uh, the kids down there uh, at Shriners Hospital of Philadelphia.
0: So the TV stations are covering you?
3: Some of them, all right? Not advertising wise. Fact, no, I, no,
0: no. I mean, they're doing stories on you.
3: Yeah, that's great. So I just try to. I come up with ideas every day. My mind don't stop. I got a girl typing me up a, a formal letter. I'm going to send it out to the Phillies, Seventy Sixers, uh, the Eagles, and the and the Flyers organizations, and just say I'm not looking for no money, do I don't want no handout. As I need you to advertise it for me, I just want somebody to buy. If you pass the word around to all the Phillies and all the, all the players, just buy one book. It's for a good cause for the kids at Shriners Hospital downtown.
0: That's great. Are you going to keep writing?
3: Uh, I'm thinking about writing a second book, Walking Miracle Number Two, I, since I've had the first one done. I've had my legs stripped, the veins. I've had. Uh, um, I had problems with my eyes, my equilibrium That's where I'm at therapy right now.
0: Crazy. I can't believe you're still here. I mean, that's amazing. And what are you, in your 70s now?
3: I'm getting ready to turn 76 this October. Well, good for you. I hope you celebrate big. I do. I'm planning on it. When I go into the hospital anymore, my son said, Dad, don't start. I walk in, and they say, what are you here for? I, sometimes I say I'm here for a pregnant test, pregnancy test. <laughs> sometimes I tell them I'm here. I'm here for the Alaskan uh, cruise. I said I'm in intensive care. Glass <laughs> doors. I got nice, beautiful nurses coming in. Tech nurses, doctors. I said I get three meals a day. What more can you want? Right? Right.
0: Well, it it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Stephen.
3: I can. Thank you for your talking to me.
0: You got it. Have All a great day.
3: You do the same. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Brogan Boyce retired to the second oldest city in Tennessee after working in Chicago as a high-voltage electric lineman for 33 years. It was then he picked up where he left off writing as a child and produced his first novel entitled Melting Away.
1: When I was in high school and even grammar school, I did write short stories and poetry that people liked. I didn't think too much of it. You know, they liked it. They told me to write more, but I just was like, I was a kid and I did things that kids do.
0: What made you decide to just write a book about the potato famine of all things?
1: I know. Isn't that weird? Um, when we moved to Tennessee, I, I, I got an early retirement when I was, well, 50, I forget how old I was, 51, 52, something like that. Oh my God. You were young. yeah, Yeah, I was, uh, I took my family down here, and part of my pension plan and all that was they would pay for certain amounts of uh, college for me, you know, and so I did. I decided to to go to a local college, and um, I took up uh, writing, of all things, you know, because I like to write actually i wrote se- several short story books uh, already but i read an article one time about the potato famine in ireland between 1845 and roughly 1849. it was a very short article it was only like one one page and i thought holy holy cow so i did a lot of research uh, um, in fact i got re- research papers from across this country, all sorts of places. I picked up research about Ireland. And the more research I did, the more intrigued I was. And, and, And actually, the more I felt sorry for the people. And when I sat down in this class, I decided, oh heck, I'll do that. And that's what I did. In fact, my first draft of the book was only 39 pages. Then I wrote another draft, then I wrote another draft, and I was already out of college, and I ended up with, I don't know, 759 pages. Wow, that's a lot. I know. Even for me, it's a lot. (laughs) What's your book about? There are several main characters. James. Uh, Another one is Maggie. Typical Irish names, you know. And those are my main characters. James is a, uh, he helps around the house on a small farm, a uh, potato farm that his a fam- a family has. He's a little odd. A lot of people th- think he's kind of goofy, but he's an, he's an odd, per- odd person. But he's very thoughtful. He looks around a lot. Maggie is a little flighty. She likes to go into town and listen to loud music <laughs> and be a kid. But James is a very thoughtful, kind, gentle person. Gentle like a lamb. How old is he? About 18. Okay. Maggie might have been 17. You know. Where do they live? They live about four or five miles north of the town of Ennis. E-N-N-I-S. And that's a real town, a real place. It in, the big industry in that area because people were poor was poor was farming potato farming James and Maggie only lived about 600 feet apart there was a little bitty so-called village of four cottages and they all knew each other real good and they were all had had potato farms of about roughly two acres, two acres a piece. They still live with their families. And sometimes at night when they have a, a penny or two or a half penny or two, they would go into town and walk around and, and sit, sit by the college and stuff like that. They, they didn't hardly have any money. They were very, very poor. What happened at the, uh, at the end of 1845, the potato crop failed. And when the potato crop failed, people died rapidly because the average potato farmer, and this is an actual fact, ate 10 to 14 pounds of potatoes and that's it, nothing else. Hmm. And so when their potato crop failed, it failed fast and people got real sick and it they caught with famine fever, uh, but it was starvation, slow starvation. And they started dying and they started dying rapidly. Uh, so that's what happened. In uh, uh, October of 1845, the uh, potato crop crop failed and they had to start looking elsewhere for food. My characters, they kept trying to work the fields, all four families that were living in uh the vicinity of every other. But James's father and and, uh, another uh, father, they were kind of crafty, and they started making trips and going to different places to try to get food. And some of their activity was illegal. uh, Some of it wasn't.
0: What was illegal?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, know, Ireland is always a... uh, a rough and tumble uh, country they hated the english the english hated them so and there were there were a lot of english soldiers in ireland at that time the irish didn't like that so they would mess with the uh, I- irish soldiers the military robbed their depots and stuff like that you know oh. so oh. that's how they got what food they did get now there were handouts but they weren't very good, you know. At the end of 1845, people were already uh, at potato depots and stuff like that, waiting for handouts. They were hurting. So the uh, winter of 1846, of course, was a nasty one for them. They started eating weeds. uh, Dandelions was a big thing. Eventually, the weeds ran out. So they had to spread out, and, and my main characters, Maggie and James, would actually take rides and go to different counties and try to find things. And when they went to different counties, they got into uh, sometimes fights, sometimes uh, rioting, and stuff like that. There was one incident where James's father and a neighbor who was a a big, rough, kind of a Celtic guy, you know, dark hair, powerful and all that. They got into hassles with the sheriff's deputies. And a lot of sheriff's deputies were all for themselves, if you know what I mean. So they got into fights with them. And some of the fights were really bad. And, And I describe them very well. Then the other neighbors which were more lads, so altogether all there were six boys in Maggie, she's your only girl. The boys, being rambunctious, they went all the way down to uh, a major city and they went to the docks and tried to rob wheat and stuff like that because all the four years Ireland was starving and people were dying by the millions, literally millions. Ireland was still exporting wheat, oats, and stuff like that. There's a reason for that. So the neighbors went there and they tried tried to rob some of that. And then the uh, military was after them and shooting at them and numerous scenes like that. It is a story of survival and craftiness. It has some pretty wild horses in there, very wild, which actually, believe it or not, have a fairly major part. It has a cow, an English Highlander and a regular offshire cow. They have a major part. I even got the animals. It it might sound a little hokey, but it wasn't. The horses were powerful. Anyway, years went by slowly and two of the fathers would go uh, and search for food at one end of Ireland, the women uh, went to different places to try to work, but then the spinning mills all went down, and they did anything they could to try to get some money or try to ma- get some food, you know. And they were they were still surviving, but in the meantime, hundreds of thousands of people were starving. I would say a year, probably the first year, half a million. The second year, about a million. Third year about a million starved, you know. And there were when the famine began, there was only eight million people in Ireland. So you couldn't see how much uh, devastation it was.
0: Yeah, it's mind boggling. It really is. It really is. You know, it was up there with COVID. I mean, it just swept across the country and, and wiped, wiped out villages and wiped out people. So we find out at the end whether these two characters survive and their families.
1: Yes, James and Maggie, did traveling together. And they went to uh, odd places. As far as everybody else, all the boys, the rambunctious boys, they all lived. Now, James and his brother ended up going to the East Coast, kind of getting out of Dodge. James stayed. The one thing James liked was a tight family structure. And during the last year, just about all four families kind of had to split up. And it really hurt James real bad. Again, because he was uh, emotional and kind and gentle, he wasn't a hard, tough guy, but at times he, he had to adapt. So the end result is out of all those three, four families, only one woman died. Wow. Just one. Now that's a, a, of them, but the others scattered to different places. They had to get out. How are you telling people about your book? Actually, I'm not telling very many. (laughs) I told a couple friends, and a couple of my friends uh, are reading it right now, Uh, maybe two or three. Uh, But outside outside of that, I'm really not going around uh, advertising.
0: Okay. Did you have any
1: plans to do that? Um. If someone were to ask me, like the college where I was going for a while, if they were to ask me to come and talk, I... Do they know you wrote
0: a book? Oh, well... You have to let them know you wrote a book or they're not going to ask.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you are right. I I've, I've been thinking about it. My instructor in college, before I left college, she said, you've got something here. Go with it. It was only my 39-page draft at that time. She says, you've got something. She even brought in a couple professors, and they said the same thing. Go with it. So I had good encouragement as I was walking out the door to college.
0: Okay. How did you come up with your pen name? (laughs) I want to make sure I have it.
1: We were traveling. You know rest stops when you're on the interstate. Right. Okay. They have uh, bulletin boards at a rest stop. Right. At one rush stop, I was reading the bulletin board, uh, and it said, Brogan. And I thought, Brogan, oh, that's an Irish name. Oh, that's kind of cool. At another rush stop, same thing, the bulletin, about uh, a missing kid this time, and his last name was Bryce, And I, uh, I thought, oh, Brogan Bryce. I like that. I'll use that. And <laughs> that's how I got it.
0: Great. Brogan, thank you so much for your patience. Thank you. Thank you for hanging in with me.
1: Oh, that's okay. I'm sorry that I'm a little, uh, I'm a little nervous, a little choppy. I, I know, I know, but,
0: uh, that's all right. We'll smooth you out. Don't you worry. Okay.
1: <laughs> but, but there's a, it, it's basically, it, it's basically 90% of the book is true, true fact, you know, uh, there was a, a lot of fighting. There was a lot of stuff. There's a lot of action, and it all weaved into uh, the people just trying to survive a of action. So. All right. Well, listen,
0: you you have a great day. Thanks for taking the time to talk
1: Hey, to me. thanks for being patient with me.
0: <laughs> all right. You take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.